Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. Welcome back to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I am so excited to have my fabulous friend, Dave Stewart, on the podcast today. Songwriter, producer, guitarist, and just all around fabulous. <laughs> so Dave, thank you so much for being here and having me in your studio to do this episode. Well, no, it's very nice to see you again. Um, I I suggested coming here to the studio because, <laughs> as always, I've got like a hundred things going on. So, uh, and... I thought it would be relaxing anyway just because I'm uh, in here every day and yeah. I'd like you to see it as well because, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll be back playing on various tracks once uh, we've established the podcast. Uh, we'll have a jam. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Yeah. How long have you had this studio here? Well, actually, um, I live on a tiny island three mile by half a mile and I have a studio there um, that is just actually the second it was finished, uh, Daryl Hall came and we wrote about six or seven songs together when it was in its just testing it out. And then immediately um, Bono and Edge said, well, Bono sent me a text saying Happy New Gear instead of Happy New Year. <laughs> and they said, when can we come? So then they came. And right till when Jesse and I left, they were working in there. And so the same guy who built that studio on the island built this studio too. It's called Mike Cronin and he he built, you know, Blackbird Studios and quite a lot of studios in Nashville and all over the place. And um, so this has been built for about maybe nine months or more. And the one on the island was literally just finished just before Christmas. Wow. But everywhere I've been and lived since I could uh, have enough money to have a little studio, um, I've made sure that the studio was within walking distance, like at the back garden or actually above the garage. Or, you know, I, I always like sort of home cooking if you know what I mean so I can come upstairs with an idea and and put it down but even then I find that I'm still using voice memos all the time mm -hmm. on the phone in the middle of the night and Jesse my engineer here he'll suddenly uh, quick Jesse here's a voice <laughs> memo <laughs> the terrible thing is when you forget to name them right yes and it's like searching for it yeah. Well, that's fun. I love having access to instruments and being able to record at any time too. And Yeah, it's been sort of an obsession since, um, well, before Annie and I uh, started to have any success as Eurythmics, um, I had a tiny little setup in my bedroom. You know, Annie and I used to live together as a couple, so in 
Um, and then when we separated, Annie only moved upstairs. So I had a little setup and we would record um, on a tiny little sort of cassette player that you could, was one of the first ones that you could sort of multi-track on. Well, you could use four tracks. And actually some of the cassettes were up there. Wow. <laughs> like we'd just been getting the cassette and, you know, loading it in and getting it onto Pro Tools. And, um, yeah, so I had very minimal equipment and you wouldn't know what it was. You probably weren't born, but there was a thing called a wasp and a thing called a spider. And um, there were, like, little tiny synthesizer and there was a thing called a caterpillar. Now, this was kind of before you could program and use MIDI and sequencing. It was just had, you know, random noise generator, but it could play notes. And and so I was just experimenting like crazy. And, um, and that was the first time I was thinking, wow, like recording in your house or in your bedroom or something is a really cool thing. So <clears throat> that trend, you know, turned into when Annie and I went to make an album for the first Eurythmics album in a studio in Germany at a friend of ours called Connie Plank, who was one of the sort of forerunners in electronic music with Kraftwerk and Devo and people like that. Um, he taught me a little bit about how to record with a desk. So we came straight back to England and I was going, we've got to get an eight-track <laughs> tape recorder and a desk and from now on we have to record ourselves because it was the only way, you know, that we could really make music the way that we wanted it to sound without being two or three people that it had to go through first, you know, so... Um, <clears throat> and that led to an obsession with having uh, some studio either in the house or at the back of the garden or somewhere. And it's never stopped. You know, I'm 69 now. <laughs> and, um, you know, I met Annie when she was 21 and she's 67 now. So <laughs> this has been going on for a long time. And um, I, don't, I never get bored or run out of, like, um, any ideas for different kind of ways of tackling or creating music you know it's uh it's a great thing you know f for people to do is to learn an instrument you know because it's got a lot of things about that are you know once you master even a little bit three chords or whatever it is with an instrument it's very sort of therapeutic de-stressing, brings joy to people, including yourself if you're playing it. Mm -hmm. And um, it stops a very busy, overactive mind. It doesn't stop it, but it, it sort of channels it into a way of expressing yourself without having to use tons of words, you know, because some things are hard to explain. Yeah, you can play a chord, an A minor with an open B in it, 
and all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, that's what I mean. <laughs> you know? Yes. I love that. When did you get started playing music? Well, when I started, it was just by default, an accident really. Well, yeah, I had a, an unfortunate accident where I all I wanted to do was play soccer for my school and for the town, you know, and become a professional soccer player. But <clears throat> I was playing in this match and it's very rainy and muddy in the northeast of England where I'm from, wind blowing and like the cold wind blowing off the North Sea, which you can imagine like you go across the North Sea and it's Norway and Sweden. So you got that icy wind and horizontal rain. So like... Oh, wow. Because so when you're playing soccer and it's that, you know, windy and wet and muddy, I was taking what's called like a corner kick and this kid sort of went running towards me to stop the ball. So he had his leg outstretched and it hit my knee, which bent the other way and broke my knee into many places, my left knee. And um, I had to have an operation in the hospital and... You know, the surgeon was saying, well, you'll be walking in about six months. You might be able to play football in about a year, or soccer, we call it. And I was like, what? I was only about 13 and a half, 14 maybe. And uh, so I was stuck in the house. My mother had decided to separate from my father and she'd gone away. My dad was depressed, but he had to go to work every day. And I was, my brother had already gone to college. So I was just stuck in the house. And um, after about four days of boredom, I sort of hobbled towards my dad's homemade record player because he made things, you know, in his woodworks little shed he had. And um, there were some records. Now, all he listened to was Rodgers and Hammerstein mm. musicals, which I'd heard every morning for years, you know. <laughs> So I kind of knew them all off by heart. I didn't necessarily want to, but they were drummed into me, like the Flower Drum Song and King and I and Sound of Music and yes. Oklahoma and, you know. And uh, and then my brother had got Bob Dylan's first album and a, another bluesy kind of album. But my cousin, who'd decided he, he wanted to go to America from a young age, He'd arrived in Memphis and he'd sent a box that hadn't been opened and it had some Levi corduroy jeans in it, which we'd never seen before, me and my brother, so a pair each. But under that, there was three blues albums and it was Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues Singers, Mississippi John Hurt, and one other, I think it was either Big Bill Brunsy or somebody like that. I didn't know what the hell they were. I was like, oh, I'll put one of these on. And uh, it was Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues Singer. So this sort of weird sound came out of the speaker and it was so eerie and I couldn't quite understand what it was. You know, you imagine in the northeast of England and then all of a sudden hearing this and then I started to understand what he was singing and that sort of very sort of whiny voice and the 
the guitar playing, and I just went into a kind of trance. So I've actually written this into a story and a, a film, it will be a film, musical film, and, and yeah, exactly. I didn't put the bit about the football and everything, I just started with me being in the house and my dad depressed enough to work and me finding this box of records. But I won't tell you the whole story, but basically it became this one record but I actually made it into, in the story, I made it into a female kind of voodoo queen, blues princess or queen. Um, she became my Excalibur or my sort of way out of, you know, Sunderland and to be a musician and became, you know, on my right shoulder throughout everything. And still is to this day. But um, in the movie, it only, you know, it's about a chunk of eight weeks of my life discovering music. And I discovered the girl next door as well. So, so the two things together. And um, yeah, so that's my, how I got into music. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, my brother had a guitar, but I didn't realize how work out how to tune it. This sounds bizarre to the listener probably, but the man next door but one, his son, David Gibson, was a friend of my brother's. And his father, uh, he was captured and put in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for four or five years and was one of the guys had to build the Burmese railway and most of them died and he came back alive but um while he was there he'd made some kind of guitar out of bits of floorboards and wires they found and made songs up to try and cheer the other guys up you know so i went around to see him (laughs) i said how do you play this thing well he'd never tuned it to a normal tuning either because he'd made this chord you know so i was playing the guitar for ages just thinking that's the way it was with this chord and it sounded a bit like um the blues records that i was playing well they might have tuned it to a chord too you know and it wasn't until about a year and a half when my brother's friend came around and went god what's this and tuned it to a normal tuning and i was like oh oh no (laughs) gotta learn everything again but um but i you know i was obsessed it was one of these things where I think music chose me, you know. I didn't know. It just hit me on the head like a lightning bolt. And um, so once I started to learn the guitar, I was, you know, really playing it about eight, nine, ten hours a day. So much so my dad got worried that I was making half of my chest concave (laughs) from pressing it because, you know, I was still a growing boy. Wow. And he kept saying pull that guitar out from your chest, you know, you're going to make your chest go funny. Even took me to the doctor and asked the doctor, you know, is this like moving my... Because it's possible, but I was... I just wanted to learn everything and, you know, can you imagine at my age, I was 16 in 1968, so 
I started picking up the guitar at 14 and on the radio was the Beatles and so I'd never bothered listening to the radio, you know, because um, I was into playing soccer, but all of a sudden I put the radio on, there was these sounds coming out. So then I was like, oh, I've been learning how to play the blues, but now I'm like, oh, the Beatles, like they're, they're making these interesting chord shapes and and then it just exploded. The whole music in my brain and out of the radio was coming Jimi Hendrix and everybody and like... So I feel very fortunate that I was born at that time and um, the music was kind of revolutionary because, you know, it had come out of um, who I, you know, I admire loads of... Uh, all the Nelson Riddle orchestrations and Frank Sinatra and all the mm -hmm. Quincy Jones, Live at the Sands, and, you know, Oscar Peterson. All, I love all of that. But there was a sort of shift, and I was showing Jesse just yesterday, I think, the Beatles doing All You Need Is Love, live broadcast from the TV to every station in the world, television broadcast right so this was breaking boundaries they had to work with nasa to do it right wow. so so i'm sitting watching this on bbc knowing that in japan and america and australia everybody was watching it at once right and that kind of blew my mind and so i started to follow the pattern of these kind of bands and, of course, England was rife with them, you know, the Kinks, and then there was Pink Floyd, and there was, you know, it was like, wow, musical explosion. I could hardly keep up with it, even though I was trying. Mm -hmm. And then all the American ones came in, and it was like, oh, now there's a whole other world. So by the time I was 19, it was 1971, and David Bowie brought out Hunky Dory... I think it was Hunky Dory and Lou Reed, Transformer, Walk on the Wild Side. And see, it, it had gone through a massive curve through hippiedom and out the other side into this kind of realism that still had interesting songwriting and textures. And not long after that, I met Annie and the whole punk movement started in Britain. And it was very different to American idea of punks because it was very social, political and to do with what was happening in Britain. And uh, so the music changed again, you know. Became, everything was going really fast, uh, like the Sex Pistols. And in America, you had that with the Ramones and bands like that. But the, um, you know, I don't know, we can say anything we want on the podcast, right? But yeah. I started to realize that music and writing and poetry was often changing radically to do with the drugs that people were taking at the time, going all the way back a thousand years, you know, to Greek. Uh, you know, when you look at the friezes on Greek sort of um, buildings or the pyramids and, you know all these things and then you start to read about it and 
uh, somebody discovered that they always thought this sort of kind of leaf looks like kind of laurel leaf kind of design was this certain plant. Then they realized, ah, it was a plant they used to chew. It was slightly hallucinogenic. And so they, they would put it amongst their sort of carvings as like this very special thing. And the same as the Mayan culture and uh, Aborigines and, you know, and then that went all the way through to a lot of classical musicians and a lot of writers, Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. you know, and um, the mushroom and, the, you know, all that stuff. Well, that happened all the way through the 60s, obviously, with LSD and, you know, people... Uh, getting stoned on weed or and then what happened is cocaine came in and kind of ruined everything wow. <laughs> right because it had a completely different you know co cocaine is like god's way of telling you you got too much money you know what i mean it's <laughs> like so then speed came which was amphetamines and this is weird because <clears throat> that was the the poor man's drug it was really cheap, but it kept you awake for days and made your brain go really fast. And Dylan, Bob Dylan, would take that and type on his typewriter all these amazing lyrics. But the punks would take it as well and, you know, play really fast and, like, really amazing lyrics in a lot of their songs, um, all written in, like, ten minutes, if you know what I mean. Wow. And, um, and so that... I'm not saying that drugs are the reason why, you know, all these amazing writers came out. I'm just saying you can follow one line and follow the music line or the writer's line and you'll you'll see it change, like, you know, in like waves in the sea of like, oh, this happened then. And because speed, it's interesting, in Britain came from... Uh, I think in the RAF, the guys who had to fly at night the bomber planes over Germany to try and drop, there was a thing called a bouncing bomb. I'm not going off on a tangent, I'm just explaining <laughs> that. They worked out this way of bouncing a uh, sort of bomb along the river. You know how you throw a stone and it bounces like three or four times? to hit a dam, to break the dam so the waters would flood because, you know, the Nazis had taken over <clears throat> Poland and France and everywhere. It was like Britain was this little island, like, well, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. So they would give the pilots these things, these pills, these blue pills, but it was actually speed that kept them, like, wide awake, made them about 8% more intelligent, sharp, you know, so they could stay awake all night and do these nighttime sort of missions. Well, that ended up being, um, you know, there was lots left over <laughs> from the army supply. And that, that's what a lot of musicians would take too. Um, but often these things are born out of experiments in laboratories, you know, LSD or whatever, for, uh, for different reasons. Just like there are a lot of drugs that have, you know, saved people's lives now, but they didn't realize it was that, that. 
like a, a drug that was made for something else to realize, oh, that helps people with diabetes or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, so all of this was happening while I was in uh, my formative years, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. It was an explosion of music and an explosion of people's minds because they were throwing away a lot of the old value system and going, hey, I don't, why do I want to work in a job and, you know, be constantly trying to climb up a ladder, like being, you know, I was talking the other day to people working here that people, you know, from a very young age get put into this like, kind of system of like testing. Like, okay, you got to pass this test to get there. And then, oh, when you're 10 or 11, you've got the tests get harder to get into the secondary school. And then, oh, now you're 11 till 18, like, all these various tests. It's like climbing up this never-ending ladder. And then you get to college, oh, now I've got to do even more. <laughs> to get into college is really stressful. And then when you're at college, to come out with some degrees even more stressful and suddenly they land on the street at like 22 or whatever having been tested and also programmed to go into certain areas without them realizing it and then they get a job and like oh no now I have to sort of climb the ladder of this job because I don't want to be the you know this the carpet sweeper or whatever and Mm -hmm. then and pay the massive student debt what (laughs) and pay massive student debt Yeah, yeah, massive student debts, but also now you've got to climb the ladder of success in this job you're at or whatever. So what happened in the mid-60s is a lot of these students and people had realization, like, hang on, I just don't want to do that, you know. And it's interesting because right now there's a lot of people doing that too because of you know, things that are happening in the world and COVID and the whole idea is, hey, uh, why don't I just grow, uh, have a couple of chickens and grow my own food and actually I don't need to climb up all these ladders. I can actually have a life to enjoy by just, you know, doing these simple things that I enjoy doing. Um, It's kind of coming back because... I was on this um, interesting kind of uh, weekly debate online with a lot of different kind of people. There was some farming people, scientists, people from the travel industry, and it was organized by a university. And everybody was talking about, you know, the new normal mm-hmm. and the world changing. This is really only three months into COVID, right? They already knew, okay, this is, everything's going to change here. And the end result was, in inverted commas, like everybody's vote, was to be local. You know, like, instead of everybody going, well, we'll fly these tangerines in from so-and-so, and, I mean, the carbon emissions on getting, you know, bananas from there and on a plane and all these, as well as, say, supporting your local 
you know, farmers and support your local bands and, you know, and the more and more sort of, um, the more the sort of, this thing went on for six weeks, these seminars, it was becoming more and more obvious um, that everything that was being sold to everybody, you know, through advertising or a lifestyle sold to people was not really about to help the people. It was to create all these businesses, like a hundred middlemen, if you know what I mean. Mm. And so the disintermediation of in anything is always good for the people. It's not good for the business people who are trying to make money from it. So, um, so that was very interesting and it reminded me of me being 15 and 16 and sitting in a hippie circle and hearing people talk. It came all the way back to that and this is like, you know, 45 years later or something, you know. Wow. Something that really stood out to me was the simplicity of being with your friends and listening to music and that being a whole experience yeah. and just a slower pace of life and appreciation mm. for life. and Yeah, and somebody deciding they're going to make some... Uh, bread or like um, and then uh, the whole thing revolves around oh that bread is it done yet you know like you see <clears throat> the enjoyment level my mum used to make bread every day right so when I came home from school you could smell the bread in the oven and you were starving right mm -hmm. and then you know you waited for the bread and then sort of butter melted on it and you ate it and you ran out in the street to play eating this bread. <clears throat> now, that was a great experience. I don't think people could top that experience with, you know, you can't compare them like, go, oh, well, would have been a better experience if, like, you know, you'd went down to the, you know, the market and then blah, blah, blah. And see, when I walk into a market, here in America, <clears throat> I don't know what you call them. We call them supermarkets in Britain, but um, grocery you... store. Sorry, a grocery store. Well, a grocery store in Britain, you see, is a very small shop the size of this room. Oh, so um, but here you open the door, or the door opens for you, and uh, it's just row rows and rows and rows of food and choices, you know. So the little island I live on has got... How many shops have got, Jesse? Three. Three. Three little shops. One's <laughs> called Tip Top. And what's... You know, they're like... But they're selling the organic vegetables that were grown across the way and eggs from the chickens up the road. And, you know, in it's part of the reason I went there was to get away from just this overwhelming amount of stuff and have a a way of making music there and think straight, you know. I could write the script, the story of Ebony McQueen. The whole box set, I'll give you one, but was made there. And I realised, oh, actually, 
I can, from one place, now this is one thing that is a great thing, I think that people realized, you know, and hopefully a lot of businessmen, well, I don't have to fly all the way to Hamburg to have a meeting. Mm -hmm. I can actually go on a Zoom or whatever you want to use and I can be in my house doing it, which helps things being local. Um, so, like everything, there's really terrible things happen from inventions, like nuclear power, or, um, <clears throat> you know, to make something work, like the internet. Great idea, blimey, look at that. You know, but then there's the other side of the internet where, oh, no, look at that, yeah. you know. So uh, I don't think you're ever going to uh, get rid of that because it's kind of like the yin and yang, isn't it? There's always one side with the other. But um, it's swinging a bit one way at the moment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I suppose, you know, in good we trust... I mean, the hopeful people in the world and the positive people and people who... When I say positive people, I don't mean people waking up every day going, it's fantastic. I mean, just, you know, hopeful people that do stuff to actually try and push it up towards the sort of the light side. Um, there's enough of those people to keep a balance. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think there always will be, otherwise it just nothing would make any sense, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast, it's called Meant for Good, and... <clears throat> it's called, sorry, what? It's called Meant for Good. Meant for Good? Yeah, and it's mm -hmm. about how we're meant for good in each other's lives. And um, I wanted to start it a few years ago because it... You know, no matter who the president was, I always had someone in my life who was very upset about the state of things. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting. And I would hear these stories um, from different people who somebody had an impact in their life and it changed their life or they did something for someone else and it changed their life. And a few stories where someone's life was actually saved. Yeah. And um, it made me think a lot about... Uh, the sphere of influence that each of us has and the good that can be done within that space, you know, whether it's your community or your family or yeah. the people you're working with. Um, and so I wanted to have a place to showcase some of these stories and mm -hmm. really encourage people because there is a lot going on and it's, there are a lot of scary things happening right now and the, the direction that we're headed. Um, things that we haven't even touched on today, things that are not being talked about in the mm -hmm. news, you know. Um, and it's it's hard to talk about some of this stuff. You you know, you talk about YouTube and uh, this design of wanting things to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. I see that in a lot of areas. And, oh, um, yeah. and you can, you know, you can be deplatformed for even making a note of it at this point and so it's it is difficult to talk about and it's like it's getting to the point of all right what's the hill I want to die on you know like you kind of gotta mm -hmm. you gotta measure the cost of it but in the midst of all of that 
Um, we're relational beings, and I believe that you know we're made for good. I, I actually believe that God designed us mm-hmm. for good and mm-hmm. and to do good here on earth. Um, and so that's a huge that's like a huge part of why I started this podcast. But yeah, well, I don't think when you look at brand new born baby, you don't think oh that baby's going to do evil things, you know. It's just they all look like total innocent, you know, goodness, innocent sort of... um, And I think what I was talking earlier about society kind of like deciding very early on how to shape... um, kids and then grown-ups into how they want to use them. So uh, I was talking the other day about they already would go, well, all these tests are, right, which ones are the ones that will be the plumbers and the joiners and that, and which ones will be the doctors and the... So it's... But what I was saying was, it's weird, they didn't really have any tests to do with imagination and creativity and all that. And you might find the kid that was put into the side that, uh, well, this person's going to be a floor sweeper and, oh, mm-hmm. they're going to go to prison or whatever. They do write these things down and decide, okay, these... And then you find out, like, no, actually, he's become a Nobel poet, Nobel Prize-winning poet or... Uh, you know, a lot of the people who have altered and changed things in the world were like dropouts, you know. And so mm-hmm. what you're saying is you need people to can who can actually um, inspire people in a way and not be going, oh, let's just divide this class of 30 kids into this and this it's like to be an inspirational teacher I think that's catching and and it really is helping to spread what you're talking about I just produced <clears throat> and worked with uh, wrote songs with Joss Stone for a new album and she has a podcast called A Cup of Happy right and it's she interviews people about similar kind of stuff like you know let's stop sort of having bad news all the time mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember this amazing experience I had where I was on another little tiny island called St Lucia well not that tiny and I was just on my own and it arrived and I went to this tiny little sort of straw shack kind of bar and there was one other guy sitting there local guy and I was a bit jet lagged and it was about uh, 10 at night I'm just going to have a a beer or something and this local guy we started chatting a bit and he was really interesting but the guy wanted to close his bar so the local guy says well I only live over there let's you know, buy a couple of beers and we can go over there, carry on talking. So I said, okay. So for me, it felt only about like three in the afternoon, you know. So I went over there and we were talking about 
all sorts, like everything you can imagine. And then he said, wait, you see that tiny little island there? Because we're right by the sea. And it was pretty dark, black sea at night, you know, and there was a little sort of bit sticking out. He said, do you fancy swimming to that island now? <laughs> uh, I was like, um, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. He said, it's not far at all. He said, it's literally, it'll take about three minutes. <laughs> so I said, okay, so we swam. It was literally just like from here to the house next door kind of thing. And it was tiny little. So we sat there and looked back at the big island, you know. And we were sort of talking there. It was very sort of warm, balmy. It's a bit scary in the dark sea, though. <laughs> when you, at night, you think, yeah. oh, I wonder what's under here. And um, <laughs> But anyway, when we got back to his place, sort of got a towel dried off and wandered back to where I was staying. But he said, hey, listen, tomorrow night I want to continue our chat and I'm having a dinner at this place. Why don't you come and join us there? I said, okay. So he gave me the address of this place. And I went along and I was just wearing, like, you know, shorts and and I get there and everybody's arriving in, like, black tie and suits, all local people and cars and... And I'm like, I saw him and I go, what's going on? You didn't tell me about this. He said, oh, you're fine. You're with me. I'm like, I don't think so. Like, everybody's, like, dressed up. He said, no, you're going to sit on my table. So <laughs> I get in there and I sit on this table. I'm starting to realize this has got something to do with him. And then it turns out, and there's the prime minister of St. Lucia and everybody's there. And they do this great big speech and big honouring this guy I've been talking to who just won the Nobel Prize in Poetry wow. and he was from that island he was called Derek Walcott and he'd written a book called Omerus which is kind of almost Shakespearean patois 800 page book or something poem <laughs> right wow. and he told this um, he did this speech and obviously he's a brilliant speaker. That's why I was so fascinated when I was talking to him. And after they sort of honoured him, he stood up and did a speech. And he was talking about, he remembers the old St. Lucia where if somebody wanted to move house, the whole village would literally help pick their house up and sort of move it for them to the next place. And he told him, he did, I can't even explain how good this speech was, right? And then he said, and then he was at school, and basically they all thought, because all of these hotel groups had come, and basically they'd come from outside foreigners and bought the sort of best beach, uh, beach areas, and, and they were just thought, oh, well, all we would ever be is like serving Coca-Cola to people or whatever. But this English guy was visiting the islands and he was asking schools along the Caribbean islands, can he teach poetry there, you know, just for a week or whatever. So he came into this man's classroom, Derek, who was about nine at the time, 
And uh, suddenly there's this English guy and the kids were like, oh, what's going on, you know? All the local St. Lucian kids, kids. And he started talking about poetry. And, and he said a lot of the kids were a bit bored, but he said he, his mind just blew. He's like, he just, this guy was going through poetry through the ages and reading poems and describing what it's all about. And he said from then on, he just was, that was it. He just discovered words and poetry. And now he's won the Nobel Prize in poetry. I don't know if that story is relevant to what you're talking about, but how one person can come for a week into a school and not be trying to force them into these categories and testing. He's just talking about poetry. And it was because, well, Derek Walcott said it was because this guy obviously loved it so much. He was talking about it and traveling for free Hmm. and teaching these kids that he said it was just mind-blowing to him to hear somebody so passionate about words, you know? Yeah, and to do it just for the love of it. Sorry? To do it just for the love of it. That's a beautiful thing. So I think if people are doing stuff for the love of it, it's very... um, It makes other people feel something. That's why if you see somebody playing guitar or piano because they love it people are drawn towards it that's why people attend concerts and things like that uh, whether it's a classical concert or uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, the people go there because they know he means it and he's passionate about what he's saying and and the more of that that happens whether it's in schools or in concert halls or on the street or in the bakery or in you know mm-hmm. everywhere it becomes more humane I think it's more the community got shattered you know and in Britain it happened a lot in the 50s by architecture somebody came along and went I tell you what we could have more people housed if we built upwards rather than streets. But when there were little streets, like a show called Coronation Street, or if you've seen The Beatles' Help, you know, little tiny little houses in a row, well, it was natural that you knew the person next door and across the road and went and borrowed a cup of milk and all that stuff. But when they built these high-rise apartments where you didn't know the person next door or the person downstairs or anything. And what happened in Britain is uh, a lot of destruction, violence, anxiety rose. Uh, There was nowhere where kids would then all play together in the street, playing football or, you know, tag or hopscotch. or It was none of that. It was suddenly everybody was locked in their apartment. So and there's many factors that can uh, take away that natural thing where people get on. What I quite like is, um, you know, coffee shops started to change. I mean, obviously Starbucks, when they realized they opened a coffee shop, asked if they could open it in a library in Seattle. But then they, they understood, okay, hang on, if we make a coffee shop with a few seats and let people hang about a bit, 
it was just quite good intentions like, hey, maybe they can have a coffee and chat, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the coffee shop cultures here as well in many places has turned into that on a big scale, you know, whether it's the barista parlors or whatever, and you see lots of people there, and you need loads of places like that um, to bring be people back together in one place. Because um, the way that, you know, um, a group of people are organized into how they live in an area can absolutely sort of cut people off or pull them together. And so there's many factors that have happened over the years that took away, you know, the idea of a village. The one thing that's really confusing to me is like years ago and in many countries still around the world, the elders are seen as very important and looked after mm -hmm. and the knowledgeable uh, the knowledge between them so they would always go to the elders when things were happening and ask them hey what do you think we should do and the elders would go well we remember this thing happening 30 years ago or 40 years or 50 years ago a similar thing and this is what we did but the elders are just like completely kicked out and I was thinking quite a while ago I thought there should be a TV channel a network called the elders and it's literally, everybody's just got the news bombarding him and this snap. And what do the elders think, you know? And uh, so I told Richard Branson this. And, uh, and I was with Peter Gabriel, who we were in Africa. And we chatted about it. And they started like a little sort of group of people called the elders. But I really wanted it to get transferred onto a network, a channel. Now, the thing is, the way that networks work, they go, well, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a bit boring or we won't get many people, let's do a survey. And they're usually r wrong when they don't know about something, you know? Like, so... Somebody started a magazine in Britain and uh, it was called Saga. And it was only for people over 65 and it was the biggest selling magazine in britain all of a sudden because of course because you know there's all these older people that want to read about stuff that they remember or that they know and they have so they were so big they then started up saga travel because a lot of older people still wanted to go and visit india or you know people live longer and they're more active but there's still no channel that has this concept of the elders. I think that would be a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom that we're missing out on. And there's a lot of emphasis on youth. Yeah. You know, well, also, elders were respected, women and men equally. But what you see... In a lot of villages in northern India and places like that, so um, the the wisdom that you could get from you know the women elders and the men elders, what they've seen 
throughout their lives is worth more than any analyst who's like trying to sort of work it out through Google or some, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It seems uh, crazy. It's like we say in Britain, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, it's like... Anyway, ask me a question, anything. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll never shut up. <laughs> I Well, I love your stories, so thank you for sharing. And there is um, kind of an organic, kind of analog um, feel to a lot of what you've shared and, and even just, you know, the experience of of someone who's older and has all this wisdom. So I love I love just thinking about that. Um, but I do have some questions for you yeah. that I'd love to ask. I'm curious if there have been any game changer moments for you where someone stepped in or did something for you that changed your life. Well, uh, there's been a few. Um, some of them were accidental, as I explained. The guy breaking my knee was a game-changing moment. <laughs> but um, And the man two doors down who was in a Japanese prison and war camp, that was a game-changing moment. But there was. I mean, <clears throat> when I was only 18 or 19, I got signed by Elton John to his record label and by Chris Blackwell, who had Island Music with Bob Marley, and all, he signed my publishing. And so I suddenly was like, came from Sunderland learning a guitar in my bedroom to four years later, I'm in London, and Elton John's playing me a song in his office, like, what do you think of this? Daniel is traveling tonight on a plane. I can see the red tail. I'm like, I know. <laughs> pretty good <laughs> and then I ended up being on tour with my little band I was in from Sunderland with Elton and just that was game changing because his songwriting was just mind boggling and his piano playing uh, but he his attitude at that time towards um, I don't know you see he just let the music come into him he it made me realize, okay, it's not struggling to find melodies or anything. you just got to be open to let them arrive. So he would just put the words of Bernie Taupin on, you know, and then just sing it and play it straight off in one go, you know, and it'd just virtually be the, that would be it. And so that was pretty mind-blowing to me because at the time I wasn't really writing songs. I was like, God, how does that happen? And... um and then through Chris Blackwell, he had a studio called Island Studios in Basing Street in Portobello Road. And down there was all of these songwriters. So, you know, I would meet these people who were all working in the studio and he did a very clever thing, going back to the cafes in the studio, which was an old church, he made part of it a sort of quite a large cafe area, right? And he had this funny guy who was, I think he was like an East End criminal or something, just made terrible sandwiches and cups of tea and coffee. But everybody sat there, so you'd have like, you know, Nick Drake sitting next to, uh, there'd be like Cat Stevens and these people sitting around talking. 
and then they'd go off into the studios and start recording. And uh, so that was a real eye-opener, being around all of these songwriting musicians who were singing and writing their own songs. And uh, so that was a big moment. Um, after that... <laughs> You know, I got, I got married when I was really young. I was like 18. My wife was 17 or something from the same town. But, you know, we sort of... <laughs> we were like still children, so... Um, that only lasted about three years. And then I met this girl, and she was part of a... She was a lot older. And... Um, she had a group called the Sadista Sisters who were a, a feminist, social, political, sort of theatre-type music group. And this was in about 1973. And so that was massive for me because um, I sort of, you know, fell in love with her and we were living together and then performing in these strange places and and then we had this massive car crash and that changed the course of my life forever because <clears throat> I was back in England and I was recovering from, uh, you know, my rib had split and went through one of my lungs and it was like man, all this stuff happened. I was walking up the street and the sky I knew was in this shop window and he knocked on the window and he said, hey, psst, come inside. And I went in and he told me he was actually squatting in this shop, he, you know, which means he, he wasn't renting it or anything, it was just dirt empty. So he decided to make it a record shop. Wow. So we were sat in there and he said to me, he said, oh, and you know what, the other night, I met this girl and she played the harmonium and sang. She was like, really good, you should meet it. So I said, okay. So we drove to Hampstead and she was studying classical harpsichord and flute at the Royal Academy of Music, but she was working in this like health food restaurant as a waitress to try and make money. And so we went there and it, the place was full but because I had, like, sort of dyed turquoise hair, spiky and, like, sort of... <clears throat> the manager wouldn't let me in the shop, so I was kept looking through the window and he kept saying, that's her there. <laughs> so I was steaming it up, like, breathing on it and write, I love you, backwards. <laughs> and after <laughs> she came out, when she finished her shift, she said, what are you doing? I'm nearly get getting the sack, you know? And my mate, he, Paul, he said oh, no, I want you to meet my friend, this is Dave. And she's saying, he nearly got me the sack. But anyway, we never stopped talking from that second onwards. We moved in together, and that was Annie, right? Oh, wow. So that was obviously a whole life-changing moment that's still going on. So this year, we're being inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame in June, and the, we're... And then, oh, I don't know what you call it, nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Congratulations. Well. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, so if you think about it, I met Annie when she was 21. I said earlier, 
and I think she's 67 now, and I'm 69. Uh, so anyway, that's been a long, you know, something that was a huge changing moment is still happening, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's been many more, but, you know, they were early on and things that happened to last with me forever, you know, like how to write songs. As Jesse knows, I do the Elton John method where I just sing and play the first thing that comes out of my mouth. And usually we don't really change it much. That's that's it. And, um, and the same would happen when Annie and I would... All of our songs, I don't think we ever wrote a song that took more than 20 minutes. Wow. You know, and it was just, oh, well, that's it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then obviously having children was like huge. I mean, nothing is more mind-blowing in every way than having children and the responsibility that comes with it. And um, so that's, I mean, I think, you know, it's never-ending, isn't it, all of the little things that are uh, life-changing um, if you're open and aware to them. See, a lot of people are open and aware to the things that are happening that are going to be life-altering, and then they go down that road going, oh, my God, this has happened, I'm going there. But a lot of people are not uh, open to it or they're not aware. they kind of got, like, blinkers on, you know? And so they're just going down that road and they these things pass by because they don't really see them, you know? And so it's like opening up your peripheral vision to everything that's going on around and then realizing, ah, actually, just to my left over here is a, a lovely country lane. I should, like, the road less traveled and I should perhaps go down it, you know? Yeah. I appreciate that you could take all those instances and see something good in them or see how they all worked together. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, thinking about your your knee being broken and that season of life that was really heavy and there was a lot of hard stuff going on and then you discover music and yeah. have a place to express yourself. And I assume that's when those producer ideas started showing up Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like um, in in the world of making music and record producing, a great sort of lesson was in Germany with a producer Connie Plank. I told you about who had a studio in a farmhouse, and Annie and I went there. And I was by this time I'd been recording in the bedroom on a little four track cassette player. But he had built his own desk and he'd also made his own studio in a barn in a farmhouse. And he was an amazing guy. And he started to teach me about recording in a way that he could have been the only teacher for me because he ignored everything in the rule book. So he liked distorting the channel and, you know, oh, let's put the microphone down this well. <laughs> and then, okay, and then, like, we'll lean your amp over the well and then sort of, like, 
it'll bounce off the water and back to the mic and and all these mad sort of experiments and then you put them all back together as the record and it would make the record really have this unique feeling. So I'm always doing that as Jesse knows, like, no, let's get a bag of nails and like <laughs> hit them with this cricket bat and like, you know, mix that with the the thing that we've got here. And I always remember one time, there's a song called um, Ball and Chain. And um, with Annie, you see, I was always saying, instead of recording the same place, let's just take our eight-track tape recorder and we went to the suburbs of Paris and set up in, like, what you would call a youth club in one room. And, you know, there was kids running around. They didn't understand what we were doing and... And we were just in this one room with an eight-track tape recorder. And, you know, my mother came over to visit and on the roof there was gravel. So I got a mic upstairs on a stand and I got my drummer, our drummer at the time, and my mom to sort of have earphones on and sort of tramp on the gravel in time so we could add it to the track. And, of course... When we stopped, I forgot to tell my mum it was okay. So I went up there and she was all red in the face and she was still oh. going on the gravel. But um, And it was funny because we used to get visited by people and like Elvis Costello came and they were like, it's like, what, what, what are you doing in this place? It took me ages to get there. It's like in the Russian quarter and, you, and they were like, you're actually making a record in this room? And we're going, yeah, no overdub room, nothing. So he said, okay, and then he ended up singing on a, a song uh, on that album, like a duet with Annie, a song called Adrian. And uh, people would visit us. Like I remember making Sweet Dreams album on an 8-track and, uh, you know, become friends with uh, Clem Burke, drummer in Blondie and Frank, and they would, like, come up it was in a picture framing factory in the eaves so Annie could only sing in between when they chopped a picture frame you know because there was another like <laughs> and then she could sing a line or two and then we had to stop and like so she didn't have any money so um, and they were the same like you're making a record here and I'm going yeah <laughs> like when you play the Sweet Dreams record I was showing Jesse People think, oh, that real synthesizer band, and like, and some of it's me and Annie playing milk bottles with sticks that we've, you know, tuned with water and like mixed with the track and <laughs> the bass drum. I had to sleep on the floor. Me and this guy Adam had to drive all the way down to Cornwall and sleep on the floor of this guy's place while he was finished build. He was finished building it. You know this. They had a wooden case and there was this first sort of com drum computer that honestly if people saw us making the sweet dreams album they wouldn't believe it and um or any album in fact you know it was, it was always just mad experiments and but you know what it was fun it wasn't all like okay, now let's lay down the bass and drums and then let's do this and then let's do that. It was just mad, you know. 
and you know shell um <laughs> i've got this funny bit of film you're in it and it's like i remember it's marty from the lake poets and uh <laughs> this film is we're all in this room like there's about 20 of us and we're all shouting right and I think Marty looked a bit confused. <laughs> but it was one of my experiments, you know, like... And... Um, <clears throat> but the fact, you know, Shell, as a band, you didn't need to do too much experiments because you already were playing all these different instruments and fusing them together into music that if you looked at the instruments, you would go, well, OK, this is going to be like... Uh, you know, a sort of Irish country music kind of band and then all of a sudden, oh no, it's not. It's kind of this fusion of so many different things. Very, uh, I was completely enamored and amazed at the sounds coming out of all of you separately and together. And, uh, yeah, so that's why I was like, God, this is really great. And uh, and it was. And it probably still is. I don't know if you're still going to make music together, but it was pretty exceptional. Thank you, Dave. You know, we had so much fun working with you on that project. Mm. And for our listeners, I haven't talked about Shell much on the podcast, mm -hmm. um, but my sisters and I have a band called Shell, S-H-E-L, and Dave made a record with us in 2016 mm -hmm. called Just Crazy Enough. You can go listen to it. You can find it wherever you listen. I'm very proud of that album. Oh, yeah. It was fun. And when you were talking about working with Annie and how um, experimental that was, and it, it struck me the dedication that you both had and also um, just the inventiveness. And you have to do that when you're on a tight budget. You just kind of have to do what you can to get it done. Mm -hmm. And that's how my sisters really are. Mm -hmm. um, I can say that about them, especially for Shell. They mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, my sister Sarah makes videos. She made all our music videos. Oh, yeah. And um, Eva styled everything. She came up with the whole look for the band. Mm -hmm. Liza did all our graphic design. I was doing like little things like talking to the business manager, trying to get our taxes in order. I was like taking yeah. care of little things behind the scene, but... No, I could see that. I was one of the reasons I was drawn towards the band because like it was like a self-contained kind of unit with everything from video making, acting, performing, yes, yeah, styling, everything. And necessity is the mother of invention, so... Yes. You guys are right, we've got to make a video. Well, Sarah's got a camera and like... Eva's got an idea in the woods and we're going to be like... That <laughs> was honestly, because I, you know, I've always been obsessed with Alice in Wonderland and, you know, Lewis Carroll wrote some of Alice Through the Looking Glass in the town where I was born, you know. So, in fact, I, uh, a friend of mine was opening a cafe not long ago and I said, call it, you know, the Looking Glass, which he did. But um, so when... I saw you guys and you were filming and I think we talked a bit about like, hmm, yeah, Alice in Wonderland and this world. And then the video is like really amazing of in the, you know, in the woods and the whole 
and the costumes and it looks like okay now this is like a real production and then behind the scenes it's like just you guys yeah and diana mayer and, and brent mayer gotta give them oh yeah credit. diana mayer brent mayer yeah yeah they were very creative and um willing to bootstrap everything <laughs> yeah and they have the studio as well right yeah so brent co-produced the album with dave and shell for I guess it was a it was quite the collaboration. It was a wild collaboration. And Ned as well. Yeah, because get tapes sent to us. Uh, we were in LA, and we'd sort of chop things about, and you know, add things, re do things, mix things, send it back, and then you guys would go, oh yeah, wow, <laughs> like, and then do something else, and but you know what, during COVID. Obviously, I've been doing that a lot, mm -hmm. you know, uh, remote recording, everything from orchestras to horn sections in Memphis, orchestras in Budapest, like, it's crazy. But I suppose if everybody's on the same wavelength, it's okay. Yeah. If you were to send something back and they went, what the hell is this? We have a few questions from our listeners, and the first one is from Nathan. He would like to know, what would you consider an important value that you now hold that wasn't really on your radar at the height of your performing career? Mm, um, a general life value? Well... I got so out of any type of routine at the height of, you know, performing and all that. So everything was just chaotic and mayhem and flying all over the world and, you know, eating everything at the wrong times and all that stuff. So now I have this sort of like self-enforced kind of uh, ritual that I do in the morning and um, and again in the evening. Now, it might not be the kind of ritual you might imagine, but anyway. Um, and it's like the value of centering myself because I think it not only helps me, but it helps the people around me to be able to uh, understand what the hell's going on. And... Um, and because of that, because of doing that myself, um, I'm able to sort of uh, focus more on the people around me, you know, which is back to your thing about, um, you know, when I mentioned it's really great to just be able to lie on your back with, you know, your friends and listen to <laughs> an album on one side but like you see at the height of performing and all that there was so many people around and it was so chaotic all the time you couldn't really focus much on anything apart from okay at nine o'clock that night I have to be going on stage and doing that and then everything else was like being whirled around in a teacup wow. but um, so yeah, it's like, it's funny because this always happens to everybody, I should imagine, but see, I was always used to be baffled why my dad insisted 
on. He used to get up in the morning because he, during the war he was sent to India, right? Um, and amazingly enough, he's from Sunderland in the northeast of England. He decided to learn yoga <laughs> from an Indian yoga uh, yogi, you know, in the foothills of the Himalayas. Can you imagine? So when he came back to Sunderland, he carried on practicing it, but like nobody else did. It was just this, and it was a strange thing to watch as I was a kid because I'd see him in the garden doing all these Hatha yoga poses, and and he kept it up like every single morning, and then he would only eat exactly the same amount of food, and he was the same weight when he was 80 as when he was 21, wow. you know? And, um, but I, I later on obviously started to understand how important that was for him because he had such PTSD from being in the war and seeing his friend burned in a parachute and all these kind of things that he did something to sort of keep him grounded every morning. And, um, it seems weird to say you have PTSD from something like being famous in, um, you know, it just seems like, well, why, you know, how, but it, because I think any situation that is just seems way out of control and um, gives you some form of anxiety. So um, now I, uh, and for the last, God, I don't know, 20 years, have found my way of just being uh, grounded. And and I always stop work at a certain time, which is much earlier than people would imagine, like 6 o'clock, that's it. And um, I don't start till about, what, 1 o'clock, Jesse, right? Like so five hours, that's it. And uh, so that, if this answer the question, I don't know if it was the right, answer to the right question but sounds like the value that you have found is having some consistency with yourself taking care of yourself yeah well i think if you take care of yourself you can take care of others because the responsibility of having you know children my daughters uh, my wife um people that work with me for me all of that, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, then it all goes haywire. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the value. I like that. All right, this is a question from our listener, Paul, and he would like to know if there's something you could go back in time and do earlier in your life, what would it be? Uh, something... That I haven't done that I wish I had done, you mean? Yeah, if you could go back in time and do it. Back in my time or back in history? Ooh. Either way. Well, okay. If I was to go back in history and I was from a tiny village, I think I would have loved to you know, done carpentry and being a carpenter and work with wood with my hands, mm -hmm. which my dad actually did as well. That was another thing that 
kept him calm, you know. He made all the furniture in our house. We, we were pretty poor, so it was like partly necessity and partly because he enjoyed doing it. So if I went back in time, in, well, I could have done that, I suppose, if I could go back and have learnt how to do that with my dad in this life. I think that would be it, in be making then guitars and tables and things like that. Um, but I was so sort of like hectic as a kid that um, it seemed so slow what he was doing. Like, you know, like a table was taking him like four months, what's going on? But like he loved it, you know, he loved doing dovetail joints and everything. There was no like screwing things together. It was all like perfectly with planes and chisels and slow motion, you know? Yeah. And yeah, that's it, really. Again, there's that organic, simple mm -hmm. theme. I like that. I like that. Well, I think we got it, right? Yeah, we did. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dave. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to share this podcast. You can look us up at Mint for Good and Mint for Good Podcast on social media to keep in touch and continue the conversation. This episode was brought to you by Ray Kurzweil. He provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, mintforgoodpodcast at gmail.com.